you guys would go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at four verses today, Romans chapter 8, 14 through 17. And in these four verses, uh, we get to see how the family of God is described and how it has unique implications and privileges for you and me. The family of God comes with extremely unique blessings that often we don't fully realize and take advantage of. And we could probably say this about every one of our families, right? Each family comes with unique privileges and some downsides, and I don't know about your family, but my family has some unique privileges and blessings, but also it's got some weird realities that come along with it as well. And that means for every family member that has the last name of Griffith, there are some unique characteristics. So if you don't believe me that my family's a little weird, let me try to convince you, all right? So first off, my parents decided that they were going to travel around the USA, live out of a trailer, have four kids, and go to a different church each week and teach a church conference. And after they did that for 20 years, they decided, my dad, who's from Oklahoma, decided he was gonna plant a church in northern Indiana. And my mom was crazy enough to stay married to the guy <laughs> to plant the, who planted the church in northern Indiana, and she's from southern Alabama. So we have some weird characteristics going on in my family. And because of these things, every single Griffith probably has some of this inside of them. So just three, three characteristics. If you're going to call yourself a Griffith, you have to do these three things. Number one, you have to have lived in over 40 out of the 50 states before the age of 18. Number two, you have to consume at least a gallon of sweet tea every two days. And number three, you have to love Oklahoma football. And that's from my dad. Uh, and I love hockey too, but I also, Oklahoma football is my first love. So don't worry, I'm still Griffith. Now, not every family is like mine, but each of your families probably have some characteristics that go alongside of it. And similarly, the family of God has unique characteristics that come with it as well. And when we are welcomed into that family, we take on those characteristics. So today we're going to look at three characteristics of being in the family of God. And that's what this passage is all about. So let's start. The first one is this, intimacy with the Father. The first characteristic unique to the family of God is intimacy with the Father. Let's go ahead and read verses 14 and 15. Follow along with me. It says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul here states that it is those who are led by the Spirit of God who are sons and daughters of God. And this is interesting word choice because most of the time Paul talks about being in the Spirit or living a life in the Spirit, but here it's led by the Spirit. And so what that implies is our humble submission to his leading and direction, our humble submission to his guiding in our life. And it is these people who are children of God. So if you are one of those people you have major implications that come with you as you are welcomed into God's family. And that's what we're talking about. So those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. And this bold claim is followed by an explanation of how this is possible. Verse 15 tells us that 
We have not received the spirit of slavery, but instead we have received the spirit of adoption. For you and I have been adopted into God's family. Now, it tells us that first, if we're adopted into something, that means that we are adopted out of something as well. Just as in any case, if you were to adopt someone, you would bring them out of another family or a broken family or a broken home and into your own. We have been adopted out of a spirit of slavery. A spirit of slavery specifically to sin. And those who are living a life in a spirit of slavery live their life in fear, as this verse tells us. But we did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. The spirit of slavery, if you live that way, you probably live your life in fear that you aren't good enough to be accepted. Afraid that you are alone in every situation. Afraid that you'll be harmfully punished for things that you've done wrong. This is the type of fear that one would have of a harsh master, but that is not who we are in God's family. We are so much different. We've been given a spirit of adoption, and instead of living in fear, we live in intimacy with God. That fear is replaced with intimacy with our Father. This has a few implications for us. First, it means that God is our Father. Just let that sink in. God is your Father. We use it so often, this language, that we probably don't let it hit us that hard. God is literally your Father. That is amazing. And when we get rid of the fear that comes from being enslaved to sin, it is replaced with intimacy with him. Now, this intimacy manifests itself in our communication with God. And Paul here quotes Jesus crying out to God as his Father as he felt the weight of the road that was ahead of him as he was going to bear sins on the cross. And the cry, Abba, Father, is an intimate one because of the status of the two people in communication. One, you have God, a father, and two, the son. When a son cries out to his father, there is an immediate connection. If I were to call my dad on a weekday night, I know that he's gonna pick up if he sees it, no matter what he's doing, because it's an intimate relationship. And that's the type of relationship that you and I have as well when we are adopted. So it not only makes sense that we join Jesus in this cry of Abba, Father, but it is now expected of us because we have such a good Father who listens. Now the second implication of our adoption is that we have unlimited access to the Father. We have unlimited access to him. It's one that we never really had in the first place because of our sin We were marked with separation. God was totally other. You and I were totally full of sin, and there was no connection. But now, through adoption, we have access to him. There's an old uh, story of a a soldier who, after the Civil War, he wanted to meet with the president, and uh, President Lincoln. And so he went up to the White House. And as you can imagine, it wasn't that easy for him to just get in and have a meeting with the president. And so he went up to the gates, and he was rejected by the guards. And so he tried again, and again he was rejected, and again he was rejected. And so one day he sat outside, distraught and discouraged, when a young boy came up to him, and he asked him, you know, what are you doing out here? And he said, I'm trying to meet with the president, but I can't. And the boy simply said, follow me. 
And the two of them walked up to the gates together, and the same guards who were standing there simply moved aside when they saw the young boy who walked in. Now the only reason that was possible was because that boy was the president's son. That boy had access to his dad, something that nobody else had. That soldier had no access. But the boy was able to vouch for that soldier, and the soldier was able to meet with President Lincoln. In the same way, you and I have absolutely no access to the Father without the Son vouching for us. But even better than vouching for us, we actually become participating in the Son's reality, that we are God's actual Son. We can walk through those gates because we have access to Him. And the third implication of our adoption is that our Father accepts us. What good would it be if we had access to him, yet when we got there, he looked at us and saw that we were full of sin? No, God accepts us as we are because we are united with Christ. Now one time I was, at, um, I was back home at the church that I had grown up in, the church my dad had planted, and I was coming home from a, a break at school, and the best part about being a pastor's kid, and not many people will tell you this, so I'm gonna let you in on a little secret, but the best part about being a pastor's kid is that there's a green room, and that green room is stocked full of snacks and sodas and everything that a young kid could want. And so, when I got home, I was like, I am ready to go back into that green room. So, I showed up to church, I started walking, started walking to the hall I knew very well, and I was stopped all of a sudden. And I was like, this is interesting. And it was a security officer who thought, obviously, seeing me, all five, seven of me, was, I was obviously a threat, right, <laughs> to, to what was going on back doors in the green room and, and to the staff at the church. And so they stopped me. And I had to explain, like, oh, no, it's okay. Like, I'm usually here. I've been gone away. That's probably why you don't know me. I'm, I'm a pastor's son. I, I, gave the, I pulled out the pastor's kid card. And I got all access then. I was immediately entered into those, uh, the green room so that I could devour my all-time favorite, blueberry muffins. And this type of rejection that the security guard felt and had to do, this never happens when we enter in with the intimacy that our Father has. So what are we supposed to do with this intimacy? Well, Jesus provides that example for us of how to cry out to him when we are desperate. And if Christ was desperate enough to cry out to them, how much more so are you and I desperate to cry out to God, Abba, Father, to seek him in our time of need? So can I just encourage you today that if you are desperate, if you are in need, if you are lonely, let the fact that you have a unique intimacy with the Father impact your desperation. Don't sit idly by, cry out to him because he is listening and he hears you and he loves you so dearly. I think the reason that most of us don't usually take advantage of this truth that we have intimacy with the Father is because we often doubt that we are truly a child of God. I mean, it's a pretty crazy thought, so it's easy for us to doubt that we are a child of God and that God actually hears us when we cry out to him. But well, this leads us into our second point, is that we have confirmation by the Spirit. Confirmation by the Spirit. This comes from verse 16, so let's look at it together. It says, 
the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And through that, we have confirmation that we actually are a true child of God. But it's hard to believe, and I realize that, that we have unlimited access to God, our creator, someone who is so other, so much more powerful, and all we are is weak human beings who continue to fail over and over again. It can be hard to believe it, but the Spirit is confirming the reality that we are children of God. And it's not just a passive thing that the Spirit is doing. Every once in a while, he's like, okay, yes, you are a child of God. Not like that. No, right now, in this very moment, he is saying to God, look right there, that is a child of yours. You are a child of God. But we also have a role in this confirmation. It's not just the Spirit that does this. If we look back at the verse, it says that the Spirit uh, bears witness with our spirit, so we are included in this, in this role. Both Christians and the Spirit are to make known to God that we are his children. Not because he forgets. <laughs> Not because he forgets, but because it's only natural. It's only natural that we make known that we are a child of God. And we do this by our good works. When we continue to live as a child of God, it's so evident that we are a child of God. When we produce good fruits, the fruits of the Spirit, it's evident that we have the Spirit inside of us, and we are a child of God. And when these good works or fruits of the Spirit are played out, we can see the witness of the Spirit being played out, and the witness of our Spirit being played out as well. Oftentimes, we want assurance of salvation. We want to know without a doubt that we are God's children and that we can call him Father. But sometimes we can get so lost in this goal, we can get so lost in achieving this reality that we lose focus on how it actually happens. And this, this can be kind of confusing if we really want assurance, it's there to be had, but how does it happen? Well, let me try to explain it this way. In moral philosophy, there's a, a paradox called the hedonistic paradox, which basically says that if you seek pleasure or happiness directly, you are sure to miss it. The experience of happiness is usually a byproduct of something else. Um, so in, in other words, happiness doesn't come to you if you are obsessed with finding it on your own. But happiness is usually achieved when we strive and, and achieve goals like having a good family and leading them well, or getting that degree that you worked so hard for. The byproduct of these things is gonna be happiness. In the same way, the byproduct of our good works shows that we have the spirit inside of us. It is best evidence that we are a child of God when we are producing the fruits of the spirit and when we are pursuing glorifying and honoring him above all else. That's our main goal. If we can pursue glorifying him above all else, then it will be assured to us that we are a child of God. This is why Paul says in Ephesians that the spirit is the first deposit of our guaranteed new life, eternal life. We have been given the ability to honor God with our actions. This is kind of what the book of Titus is actually all about. It talks about how there are people who are unfit for any good work, 
completely unfit for any good work. And through the preaching of grace and sound doctrine, they are supposed to become people who are zealous for good works. That's supposed to be you and me. And when we are zealous for good works, we will see the Spirit being played out in our lives. So the Spirit confirms that you are a child of God by the way that you live. A life lived being led by the Spirit makes you behave as a child of God. And this is kind of shocking. I mean, does it ever shock you that you're able to produce some of the fruits of the Spirit? Because it shocks me sometimes, and my wife's probably saying, yeah, it's kind of shocking when you produce some fruits of the Spirit. But it shocks me sometimes that I'm able to live this out, but it's only because the Spirit is living inside of me. I remember just an example of how this works. I remember the day after I got saved, I was so excited to tell everybody. I was like seven years old. I was super excited. I went directly to my older sister, Brooke, and I was like, Brooke, you will never believe what happened last night. I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you. And she was like, okay. So I was like, Brooke, I got saved last night. I realized that at my best, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner who deserved nothing but eternal separation from God in hell. But I began to have faith in Christ that he saved me from my sin by dying on the cross and resurrecting three days later to have power and authority over all things, including death. Now that I have faith in him, I put to death my flesh so that I might have life in the spirit and one day share in a resurrection like his in a future glorified body. I said that word for word, I promise. <laughs> and I was really into theology back then, as you can tell. And you know what her response was? She looked at me and she said, I'm so happy for you. She gave me a hug. And I was like, oh, this is so nice. And then she said, Zach, since you're saved, and I was like, oh, no. She is about to use my own salvation against me. And she said, Zach, since you're saved, can I borrow your BB gun? And I was like, oh, in that moment, my spirit was torn. There was war at my, in my spirit because I was like, she's right. I'm saved. I got to do the right thing here. And so I said, Brooke, yes, you can borrow my BB gun. And she ran off and had a good, good day. And in that moment, though extremely simple and extremely childish, I believe the spirit was bearing witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. I was able to do the right thing in that situation. So we must examine our lives to see whether or not we are producing the spirit or the fruits of the spirit. If you want confirmation that you are a child of God, be looking for the fruits of spirit in your own life. Ask others to weigh in on this. It's extremely important that we have a community that affirms that you are a child of God, and if you're not, one that calls you out and calls you back to truth. And when we are confirmed by the Spirit of God, the Father receives glory. But God, is, God the Father is actually not the only one who receives glory, but we actually do as well. So that's what the third point is all about. We have an inheritance in the Son. The third characteristic of being a part of the family of God is that we receive an inheritance in the Son. That comes from verse 17 in this passage, so let's look there. It says this, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul uses this word heirs here to describe our relationship, our relationship with God and fellow heirs or co-heirs to describe our relationship to Christ. To be heirs of God simply means that we will receive an inheritance from him. 
That's all it means. It means that we have expectation that there will be a gift from him. And that we've already received so much, but there's still a future inheritance to come. And we get to share in this truth because we are united with Christ, who is well-deserving of a great inheritance and a great glorification. But because we are united with him, we get to share in it. So just as we have been adopted by the Father to receive an intimate relationship with him, we have been adopted so that we receive a great inheritance from him as well. True children receive an inheritance from their father. Now, it's a little different because it says we're adopted. We have been received the spirit of adoption, so it's a little bit different. So is anybody in here adopted? If anybody, just raise your hand if you're adopted. You're right here. Perfect. You're right in my line of sight. Thank you so much. Uh, I have a question for you, though. Did you receive uh, presents from your parents on your birthday, your adopted parents? Yes. Okay, we got a head nod. And what about Christmas? You, I'm assuming you got presents then as well? Okay, yes. Okay. So the point here is that in your adoption, your parents then were blessing you because you were fully a part of their family. In the same way, just as we have been adopted, the reality that any biological children would receive an inheritance, we also, through adoption, receive and share in that inheritance as well. When we are adopted into God's family, we receive the benefit of being a true child of God. So what is the inheritance, and how do we meet this criteria? Well, Paul tells us that if we want to be identified as a co-heir or a fellow heir with Christ in the future, we must identify with him in an antagonistic world now. And that means that we are going to face suffering. And that's okay. That's okay. Christ faced suffering. We should expect suffering. I mean, if you look at Christ, the most gracious man who ever lived, and all he was met with was protest and persecution. So, if he was the most gracious man who ever lived, how much more you and I, who are not the most gracious people to ever live, and can I get an amen on that? We are going to face suffering, and it's only natural because we are united with him. When the world we live in comes in contact with someone who is united with Christ, the result we should expect is hostility. Now, that's not the only result, and it's not always going to be that way, but that's actually pretty natural, and that's okay because we can look to Christ who has gone through that for us as well. Suffering in the Christian life is not just a result of believing in the gospel, but is itself part of the gospel being played out. When we believe in the gospel, we can expect suffering, and that's part of it as well. In fact, Grant McCoskell, uh, a theologian, writes this. He says, we are still in the ruins of war. And when we address God, our Father, it is often not with a triumphant shout, but with a pained cry of Abba, Father. Oftentimes we most reflect the person of Christ when we faithfully cry out, Abba, Father, in our times of despair. However, the suffering does not take place without hope. There is no suffering that the Christian faces without hope. We must remember the inheritance that we look forward to while we suffer. And the inheritance that Paul reminds us of 
is that we will be glorified. And I just tell you that if you are suffering right now, you are promised a glorification. And that is supposed to stir you on to hope, stir, or spur you on to endurance. A friend of mine shared this with me uh, last week when we were talking about this passage. He, he said it reminded him of a, a similar situation to this. Like, if he promised me, Zach, I am gonna give you a billion dollars at the end of the week. You had to wait one week, I'm gonna give you a billion dollars at the end of it, and then things start to go bad for me during that week. I get in the car Monday morning, try to start it, car doesn't start. I don't know about you, that happened to me this week. Or what if you went to the dentist, you find out you need a root canal. I mean, that's probably the worst news in the world, <laughs> that you have to get a root canal. Or you walk, you're walking and you're trying to get ready, you're in a rush, you're late for something, you stub your toe, okay? These are minor inconveniences, but still, how much less do they seem when I know I'm getting a billion dollars at the end of the week? I mean, who cares about a broken down car if I can just buy my dream car at the end of the week right off the lot, brand new? In the same way, when you and I face sufferings in this life, if we hold on to the promise and hope that is to come, our sufferings will seem more like minor inconveniences compared to the hope and the reality that we have waiting for us at the end of our lives. And we have been promised a glorified inheritance, but we will suffer on earth before we get there. But our sufferings pale in comparison to what is to come and what is promised to us. When we think uh, about our eternal glorification in Christ, it should motivate us now to keep pressing on, pressing on no matter what, through our trials, through our sufferings, through no matter what you face, if you remember the inheritance that is to come, you will do all things with joy. As Christopher Morgan puts it, he says, we are recipients of glory, undergoing transformation through glory, and will be sharers of glory. Now this boggles my mind, it doesn't make any sense to me. If you think about it, you and I were once enemies with God, enemies with God. We've broken his covenant over and over and over again, yet he still wants to glorify us. And that only makes sense, the only way that makes sense is because we are united with Christ united with his son, who deserves all the glory in the world. So when you encounter suffering in your life, do not be discouraged. You are participating in Christ's life in your suffering. And at the same time that you are participating in that suffering, you are experiencing only the first half of a promise. But the second half is coming, that you will be glorified with him. This is an amazing truth, one that we have to hold on to. So we often need to remind ourselves of it, remind ourselves of it in scripture, remind ourselves of it in our relationships. Be someone that reminds another person that they have a future that is glorious. That's what the church is supposed to be for. Now these three characteristics, inheritance in the son, confirmation in the spirit, and intimacy with the father, all of these are only possible because of salvation. Because of Jesus on the cross dying for our sins, these are available to us. So our response has to be first thanks and honoring God. It's supposed to 
encourage us to honor him with our lifestyle and with our words and, and praising him. He has welcomed us into his family, a family that we didn't really belong in, but now we start to experience these shared characteristics, so we must rejoice. We have so much to be thankful for and so much to look forward to because of our Trinitarian family. So let's close by praying to God and seeking the Father because we are his children and he loves us dearly. Let's pray. Abba, Father, we come to you today so thankful, so thankful for everything that you have given us. You have offered us intimacy with you, intimacy with a loving Father who forgives us constantly, and we thank you for it. Father, forgive us when we doubt of your goodness. I pray that we would be encouraged to produce fruits of the Spirit. Give us opportunities to do that more and more. We thank you so much that we have such a bright future to look forward to. Thank you that your son has set the example of how to have intimacy with you, and he is the one who is deserving of all glory. Yet you share it with us, and we thank you for that. In your name we pray, amen.